Okay. I'm feeling um, some excitement tonight, so I'm trying to work with my energy. Went out and did a little brisk walk. Sometimes the Dharma is very, very exciting. <laughs> exciting in the sense that it fills me with awe, fills me with passion, fills me with... Well, the, the Tibetans, it's very funny. I, I live near a Tibetan meditation center called Land of Medicine Buddha. And I've offered a number of Vipassana retreats there. It's in California. And they have an interesting lingo that they use. And they say, Wednesday night is Dharma Slam night. <laughs> and, and it's like one of the, the, the Rinpoche's is coming and, she, and he or she, because there's both uh, male and female monks there, and they do what they call a Dharma slam. And so I feel like this tonight's going to be a Dharma slam. <laughs> and it's a very auspicious time. I think the energies, it's, you know, depending on where you are in the world, last night or tonight is the full moon, and this is the thrice blessed day of the Buddha. The Buddha's birthday, the day of his enlightenment, and the day of his entering into Parinibbana. So perhaps it's even just celestial forces and earthen forces uh, here. This is a very auspicious time for us to take a retreat during this uh, time, what's called Visak, the Buddha's birth and his enlightenment in death day. And so it's today or yesterday, depending on where you are, was the full moon. And so I feel like for today, uh, really want to, when I say slam, I'm really meaning let's make a, I'm going to try to make a, a noble attempt to get to the core, to the crux, to the essence of why, why are we doing this? And so even, you know, the name of this retreat is Steady the Mind, Opening to Insight. And so, you know, we're talking about studying the mind, and we've been working with that to develop insight as a synthesized, integrated practice. Yes, we know that in certain... Oh, oh yeah, we should have... Yeah. Turn on the recorder, please. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, technical difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it has been recording. No, it's, it's recorded from the very beginning. Thank you. you. Thank you. So taking a breath in and out. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been working on steadying the mind in, in an integrated, synthesized process here. Not steering more one than the other, but in an integrated fashion. And of course, we know about these ways where it does become separate, and we can work on developing very spectacular levels of absorption, colors, lights, many, many other special events that can arise through the concentrated awareness of the mind. I remember once asking my one of my meditation teachers, Bokoku Seto, about, actually, I was commenting with him about a sunset and how beautiful it was. And he said, yes, it's beautiful. But the beauty of insight surpasses all other things. I'll never remember that. It was one of those spectacular sunsets. So we've been learning about steadying the mind and learning about what comes up and how to work with when the mind is not steady. This was really uh, the subject of the last time that I spoke. I want to just tonight devote more time to the aspects of insight. So as I mentioned, we're going to go tonight, we're going to dive down to the essence, the heart of the Dharma. What it is to be understood and realized. 
and what are the steps to that realization. So I'm going to talk about the very heart of the Buddha's teachings that are found in the first two discourses that the Buddha ever uttered. One is called the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And the second sutta discourse that the Buddha taught was the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the characteristics, the three characteristics of existence, the sign of no self. And so I have referred a few times to the story of the Buddha. So again, I want to go over it briefly in that he was born in Lumbini around the year 623 BC on the full moon day of May. And at the age of 29, living a very sheltered life, he was actually warned, well, his father was warned when Siddhartha Gautama was born by some fortune tellers. One of those fortune tellers and the wisest, his name was Kodanya. And three of them said, oh, he'll become a great king like you. But Kodanya said, no, he'll become a Buddha. Father didn't like that. Father wanted him to become a great king. And so he lived a very, very sheltered life. And he had all, he had the iPad 2 and the iPhone 4G and everything else you could think of at the time. All the latest things. Education. Lived a beautiful life. But at the age of 29, there were these was called sometimes the Four Messengers, where he left the palace to go for a little round out in the town. And he came across four signs. He came across aging, illness, and death. And the last was a sign of a very strange person that he had never seen before, which was a wandering a uh, holy person that was dedicating their life to understand the meaning of life. And having never really seen these signs so vividly, he was shaken to his core with the realization that he nor anyone else cannot escape from aging, illness, and death. And in Pali, the word is samweka, which describes a state of consciousness. I believe I said it already before, but again, it's this awareness of that death can come at any moment, and it catapults one into a state of urgency to understand what is this meaning of life. And he knew after he saw that samana, the holy wanderer, that that's what he wanted to do. And so he let his father know that he was leaving and his father was in despair and he said, please stay. I can give you anything. I'm a great king. And Siddhartha said, okay, I, grant, I want you to give me three things. And a glimmer of hope arose in dad because he's a great king. And so I said, sure, I can give you three things. He said, prevent me from aging, prevent me from getting sick, prevent me from dying. In that moment, the king couldn't grant the wish. But again, he pleaded with his son, please stay. Siddhartha said, how about two wishes? A glimmer of hope. Prevent me from aging and from getting sick. Again, the king couldn't fulfill the wish. Again, the king pleaded, Siddhartha, don't go. You had to be the king. And Siddhartha said, okay, Father, grant me one wish. Prevent me from dying. And at that moment, the king knew he was defeated. And Siddhartha left the palace, shaved off his hair, gave up his princely garments, even in the midst of his wife that was giving birth to a son, and he left into the forest. Now, in these days, he'd be billed for child support. But you have to understand, at the time, there was a whole palace filled with family and friends. I actually have a, a friend of mine who is Burmese that, that grew up in a, um, 
in Burma. And when he, he graduated, became an electrical engineer, and he was actually brought up a Muslim. And he was very interested in the nature of consciousness, and he began studying Buddhism and decided he wanted to become a monk. He had two daughters. And the story goes that he asked his wife if he could leave and become a monk. And in that culture, though hard for us to understand, they were absolutely delighted. And um, they have um, supported him all these years to live the life as a monk. And it turns out that his name is Sierra Uzodika, who's a very beloved uh, monk in Burma, and that he's actually written a number of his books. It turns out that his daughter became a publisher and published all of his books for him. And there's some just very beautiful connection. And he's kind of like the Herman Hess of Burma. All of his books are about bringing hope to disenchanted youth in a very, very narrow-minded country. And the story goes, of course, later after the Buddha's enlightenment, he did come back to the palace. He did come back to his wife, to his son, to his father, and he gave them the royal heritage. And as happy stories go, they all attained enlightenment. But that's not the subject of my talk, but just a little background. The Buddha practiced very, Siddhartha Gautama, I should say, practiced very intensively for six long years, practicing with, from teacher to teacher, learning different meditation practices till the point came that he knew everything that the teacher knew and the teacher said, just stay with me and teach with me and we'll be fine and happy. And it still didn't quench his thirst for the full truth. Finally, he began to practice with these ascetics, these five ascetics that practice extremely severe self-mortification on profound fasting and punishing the body. It is said that Siddhartha Gautama came down eventually to eating just one grain of rice a day. And when he touched his belly, he could feel his tailbone. And on the seat of uh, exhaustion and near death, he realized the futility of self-mortification. And he left those five ascetics and came to a river and happened to meet a maiden named Sujata who offered him a bowl of rice gruel. And he began to eat and gather up his strength. And not too far from there, there was a tree, a very beautiful and majestic tree. And he decided, I'm going to go there and just sit. And I think there was just this decision. He's been to many different places and tried to learn from different people. He punished his body and saw the futility of that. And gathering up his strength, he made the resolution, I'm going to just sit by this tree and I want to figure it out here and now. I'm not going to leave till I awaken. And it said on the evening, as he began his practice, he recalled a memory of when he was a child. And he was out in a field one day, or sitting by a field one day, and it was one of these like beautiful, beautiful sunny days with just the right temperature and breeze. And he was just feeling so happy and so at ease. And he was gathering, looking around and feeling how beautiful it was. And then he just happened to gaze out to the uh, the farmland across the road and saw some farmers. He was just a boy. He saw some farmers and they were using the oxen and they were digging the plow into the earth for the first break of the earth for growing. It was in the springtime to grow food, vegetables. And his sensitivity was incredibly heightened, it is said. And as the plow was digging into the earth, he could almost like hear or sense the cries of the worms. And there was this moment of incredible suffering and incredible beauty. It was all there. That was life. And as a young boy, you know, it's such, such a moment to take in. And, and somehow he just found himself as that boy just starting to breathe in and to breathe out. So many years later, here he is now Siddhartha by the Bodhi tree. And he's recalling this memory, and then he remembers, oh yeah, I sat and I breathed in, and I breathed out, and he began to steady his mind. To calm his mind. Began his breathing, and as 
he began to steady his mind quite naturally. The seven factors of enlightenment arose within him. And I'll just name them and a little bit about them. But it, and I just want to name these seven factors of enlightenment because these are conditions that arise as we become more steady. Qualities of mindfulness and investigation arise. The awareness, the investigation into the body, to the mind, to the foundations of mindfulness. There's also a certain harmonizing quality of energy that's not too tight and not too loose. And we've experienced ourselves, when we've been tight, it often produces a sense of tension, irritation, aggravation, pain. If it's too loose, conversely, sloth and torpor, falling asleep. So somewhere in between not too tight and not too loose, the energy's getting balanced that supports the factors of rapture and joy. It's a refreshing energy, like a cool waterfall on a hot day. They talk about five grades of this refreshing energy or a rapture and joy, I should say, this minor, this momentary, this showering, this uplifting, this pervading. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Pervading rapture. This is coming from the steadiness of mind that's bringing on the qualities of tranquility and calmness, the settling down of the mind and the heart, producing our concentration. Our concentration begins to become effortless. It's sustaining attention. And of course, the last factor of enlightenment, equanimity begins to become fully developed, balanced wisdom, unperturbedness. Now we know, and I mentioned it earlier too, about Mara, the deity, the tempter, the one that's always trying to sabotage the Buddha, sent his armies of seduction, fear, doubt. Each time these armies were cast upon the Buddha, as I mentioned as well, the Buddha said, I see you, Mara. And just in that seeing, in the knowing, he could not be touched. Finally, the Buddha awakened and Mara again tried to tempt him. Well, who will be your witness? Who will be your witness? I won't be your witness. And up from the earth, supposedly, the great deity of the earth came up and said, I will be your witness. And right behind me with the Buddha, this mudra of the hand pointing down is the symbol of pointing down towards the earth and the angel of the earth, if you will, arose to witness this great event. This great event marked a time of the turning of the wheel of the Dharma in the sense of his awakening. And he says, this is kind of a lion's roar of his awakening, he says, through many of a birth, I wandered in samsara. Samsara is the world of birth, old age, disease, and death. Through many a birth, I wandered in samsara, seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again. O house builder, O house builder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no home again. All the rafters are broken. Thy ridge poles are shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned. This is the end of all craving, hatred, and ignorance. The Buddha stayed by the Bodhi tree for the next nearly three months, and in the full moon of July at the Deer Park at Isipatana near Benares, at sunset, he came and met with those five ascetics that he had been practicing with. And at first, those ascetics said, oh, there's that person, Siddhartha, and he went off the deep wagon, he started eating again, let's not even pay any attention to him. But there was something about the way that he was walking up to them that without even talking to one another, some started gathering 
some water and sweeping the path. There was something about the vibe. And they received him and they saw that something extraordinary had happened. I almost felt just emotional talking about it. Something extraordinary happened and he went to begin to talk and said first that what he had discovered was the middle path and that it is wise to avoid the extremes of indulgence and self-mortification. And then when he went on to explain what is known as the Four Noble Truths, and we've talked some about them and we'll talk a little bit more. And in a sense, the first noble truth is called the noble truth of suffering and Pali Dukkha. It's kind of acknowledging the elephant that has been in the room. It's funny though, there's 81 yogis, Richard and I make 82. There's been Actually, 83, I should say. <laughs> so, and I think we can all agree that there's 83 dukas in the room. 83, um, at times, suffering beings. Dukkha means, in the sense, it's kind of like you put a wheel into a... But it's not quite round, and you can't quite get it in. A friend of mine said there was some word that when a wagon was going and the head like it wasn't completely round, it would make a sound, the duke, the duke, the duke. We don't know if that was the origin of the word dukkha. But, but you could see that that would be kind of a dukkha experience to be bouncing around all the time on the wagon. So there's a type of inherent dissatisfactoriness. And, you know, we look like, you know, we have our food and then it's done. We have this and then it's done. We have that and then it's done. And then we're constantly looking for something else and kind of pushing away what we, we don't want. The Buddha goes on to say birth can be painful, old age, aging, disease, death, separation, getting things you don't like, uncertainty, unpleasant experiences, being around people that you don't like. So there's a lots of different situations that are dissatisfactory, that are stressful, that are difficult. And so this is a teaching that there is dukkha in the world. And sometimes Buddhism gets a bum rap. It's all about dukkha. It's actually the direct opposite. It's about sukha. Sukha is happiness, or the pointing towards freedom, freedom from dukkha. So when we say steadying the mind, opening to insight, we're talking about steadying the mind to open the insight to free ourselves from suffering. Second noble truth is that Buddha pointed to that there, was a, that, 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 that there is suffering and there is a cause to this, that there is a cause. And I read to you the other night Achan Amaro's um, rendering, translation of the cause of suffering. And again, I'm going to read it because I haven't found a better translation or rendering. It says, this because is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and it is craving. Craving that is compelling. So listen to these words. Craving that is compelling, intoxicating. Do you know what I mean? Compelling, intoxicating, that causes us to be born into things again and again and again. Ever seeking delight now, here, now, there. Namely, it's craving for sensual delights, craving to be something, or the craving to feel nothing. Pretty powerful. This cause. And of course, I read you that poem by Kabir about um, you know, gave up his sewn clothes, wore a robe, then when noticed it was well woven, then bought some bear lap, and now throws it over his shoulder and pulled back the sexual longings. Now I'm angry, then I gave up rage, now I notice I'm greedy all day. It's like it goes on and on and on. Until, of course, in Kabir's other poem, we speak about the third noble truth, the end of suffering, where he went to a shop where the merchant said, there's nothing of value here, and I found it, and I stayed. 
these poems arise out of the richness of not wanting, that freedom of not wanting. So the Buddha talked about that there is a cause, this cause of, of craving, but within that cause, even on, on, on that cause at the most foundational level, it is ignorance, unawareness that feeds that sense of grasping, to be born again and again into things. And so the end, or the, we talk about the cessation of suffering, is the severing of that type of grasping. That's where freedom can be experienced. And I trust that perhaps some of you have noticed that in your own practice, in your own life here, maybe at certain times a certain want rose up into your awareness and you can just see its effect on you. It carries like a storm of fire. But if we watch it very closely, the mind is steady, we see that that fire begins to dissipate and gradually it leaves. This weathering of the fire, and then as it leaves, the, the sense of relief, the sense of the feeling, the pleasure of that, not, of that wanting, that not wanting has gone by, the, the wanting mind is gone. And that release, that peace that comes. What is eradicated, if you will, is greed, hatred, and ignorance. And again, talked about that there's no fire hotter than greed, no ice colder than hatred, no fog thicker than ignorance. In the Buddhist psychology, it's talked about that where do these exist? They exist, of course, in the mind, but also it's mind's interaction with our five senses. So mindfulness is placing a guardian a watcher, an attendant, with the mind and with our senses. Perhaps it's hard to believe that there could be an end to suffering. And I know that Sylvia Borstein, she likes to say the lessening of suffering, that it's, it's a gradual experience. And perhaps even in this retreat, some of us have experienced some lessening of our own suffering through deeper understanding. I once had a, one of many existential crises. And I was a, uh, a monk in the monastery and I was, um, getting ready to disrobe. And what was really up for me at the time was, is there really enlightenment? It was really up for me, because if there wasn't, what am I doing here? <laughs> and according to the monk's rules of discipline, one monk can ask another monk whether they have experienced anything or not. And, and they can tell you. They can't tell a lay person. And of course, it's a heavy-duty business. If you lie, you're out of the order for the rest of your life. If you say something that you've attained and you haven't attained it, you're out. That's a major offense, a parajika offense. There's only one other time that a monk can disclose, if they are to disclose, any attainments on their deathbed, which they can do to a, for also to a layperson, but not um, when they're not on their deathbed. But I was still a monk. Still had about five minutes left before I disrobed. <laughs> and I had an intention to ask Sero. This is my same Sero that told me about how to die with, with, with full awareness. And so I said, Sero, I really, I got to know, is there, is there Nibbana? And I think that he could really see I was really in a desperate place. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing now, but at the time I was not laughing. I was really, you know, like, you know. It was important to me. And so I said, Sarah, you know, I'm disrobing soon and I, I just have to ask you this. And, and it's, it's just heavy in my heart. And, you know, what's the meaning? And, and so I'll never forget, Sero, he looked at me and he smiled very tenderly. And he said, yes, <laughs> there is Nibbana. 
And he went on to say that I have not finished crossing over the stream, but I am in the stream. So it's a very beautiful metaphorical way, not saying, you know, I'm fully enlightened or whatever, but it was enough for me in a transmission to know that he knew something that I didn't know. And, and of course, living with him very closely for eight years and seeing his sense of inner contentment, he was kind of the opposite of charisma. There's some teachers that have kind of a charismatic effect and they're wonderful teachers and so forth, but if Seto was in the room, you might not even notice that he was there. The, he had kind of the opposite of rather than like energy coming towards him, there was like, he just, he wasn't that noticeable and incredibly humble, incredibly contented. He's the epitome of what I like to call mind your own dharma. And he could just sit in his room and he did not need to have anybody come. He did not need anything. And he would just be fine sitting in his chair, I think forever. He just didn't need anything, and he just seemed just so relaxed and calm and happy. It's quite amazing. And I told you again the other night, like I would just often like to lie on the floor next to him and, and, and just listen to him breathe. And to me, it felt like I was in the forest. And there wasn't nothing, there wasn't really much to talk about. It was just hanging out and it, just breathing and just, just being there. He had the practice, there's some ascetic practices in the forest tradition where you take on the practices of not lying down. And my other teacher, Tampulu Sero, he did not lie down for over 50 years. They would stay in chairs, and Linda Sero stayed for many, many years in a chair. One night I had the opportunity to sleep in his room. I'm not sure. Maybe I gave up my room. I forget what happened. And he said, come here. You can just lie on the floor. And he was on the chair. So I was lying on the floor. And, and so I was really excited. I was like a kid. And it was like Christmas, like a Christmas night. Like, oh my gosh, Santa going to come down? Or what's going to happen? Like, you know, it was just amazing. And, and I was just so energized and happy and excited. And, and every now and again, I'd, I'd fall asleep. But then I'd wake up and I'd look. What's he doing? I wanted to see what this guy was doing. And every time I opened up my eyes to look at him, he just was looking at me smiling. <laughs> so then I got on my side where I could just face him. I wasn't turned away from him. I was facing him. So all I had to do was just open up my eyes, just a microscope a little bit, and see, like, what's he doing? Every time I did it, his, he was just looking at me smiling. It was uncanny. Who was this guy? I don't know. I don't know. The Dharma is filled with this practice of investigation. Ehipasiko. See for yourself with your own experience. <clears throat> the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Noble Path. Namely, it's wise understanding, intention, Speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. I know I'm saying this more quickly now, but I'm going to actually speak a bit about it in more length later. But it's interesting to know that at the end of the Buddha giving his discourse, teaching on the turning of the will of the Dharma, this very first discourse, that that one of the five ascetics entered the stream of enlightenment. And it turns out that his name was Kodanya, and he was the same Kodanya that was the fortune teller way back when that said, this guy's going to become a Buddha. So it's a nice reunion. And the other, then the other monks also said, the other ascetics said, we, we want to follow you know, your teaching. And the Buddha said to them, ehi bhikkhus come monks. That was their ordination. They were now monks. So now there was five monks in the world. Five days later, the Buddha met with them again. 
and taught them the second, the second discourse called the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the marks of existence, the mark of insubstantiality, no self. The Buddha said, the body is without self. If there is a self, the body would not be subject to suffering. What is implied, of course, is that if you had some control, if you had a self, you could say, body, be healthy, don't get sick, and don't die. But obviously, we don't have much control. And also, of course, uh, the Buddha was a great revolutionary in those times of India with the caste system and, of course, in the belief of the larger self, the permanent self. And the Buddha said, there's no self to be found. The Buddha was a revolutionary because the caste system was very solidified. And the Buddha said that you are of noble birth if you purify your mind. It's not by what birth you're born into. So one of the marks that the Buddha talked about in the characteristics of existence is a sense of no self, the erroneous view of self. Another mark that he implied that he spoke about was, is the body permanent or not? So obviously he's teaching and pointing to the universal uh, aspects of impermanence, that whatever is conditioned, whatever is arising, has its own time of passing. Whatever takes birth, whatever takes form, of course, in varying lifespans, but whatever takes birth, arises, passes away. And because of this rising and passing away, my teacher Tempulu Sero used to say, whatever is impermanent is very dissatisfactory. It's painful, this change. I know that it might be difficult for us to really grok, to really understand the, these characteristics that are subject to all phenomena. Insubstantiality or no self, impermanence, dissatisfactoriness. And you know, John Kabat-Zinn, who's just this down-to-earth New York tough guy, genius, meditation teacher, beautiful man that he is. He, he puts it in his own way. This is his definition of the three characteristics. He says, for suffering, he says, you know, shit happens. Impermanence, things change. No self, don't take it personally. <laughs> I like that. Emily Dickinson liked that in her poem that she calls, I'm Nobody. She says, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us, but don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. I'm nobody. <laughs> so I'd like to come back to the Eightfold path. Do we need to stand up and stretch? <laughs> if anybody wants to stand up and stretch for a second, feel free. Or sit up and stretch, whatever you like to do. So the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is divided into three areas, and actually the teachings of the Dharma are divided into three areas. First is the theories, or the, the reading, the book knowledge, that's called Pariyati in Pali. And then there's the practice, the practice of the, what we're learning, that's called Patipati. And bringing those two together, theory and practice, comes about realization. Pativeda, realization. The culmination of theory and practice is realization. The cultivation of developing a steady mind and following the Eightfold Noble Steps 
leads to the penetrating wisdom to the end of suffering, to the uprooting and eradication of greed, hatred, and ignorance. In Pali, the word for enlightened being is the arahant. The arahant means the destroyer of the enemies. What are the destroyers of the enemies? They are greed, hatred, and ignorance. So it's very psychologically based in many ways. The Eightfold Path is divided into three areas, wisdom, virtue, and concentration. And so I'd like to go over these steps that are so vital. Many people ask me, well, how, what do I do when I leave here? What, what do I do? How do I keep this going? And I feel that these eightfold steps reveal to us a very practical pathway to awakening. Eightfold path. It's actually a beautiful small booklet by Bhikkhu Bodhi called The Noble Eightfold Path that is superior. So we'll start with um, in the wisdom group, there's wise understanding or view and intention and thought, wise intention and thought. In the group of virtue, there's wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, and in the group of concentration, samadhi, is wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. These eight steps or spokes are intertwined like rope. They are interrelated and support one another, helping, as I've said, to steady the mind, to develop insight and wisdom. So we'll start with the wisdom group, wise understanding or wise view. With wise understanding, which is really helps to initiate us onto the path, we understand more deeply about suffering, its cause, and this path to its end. We understand that the mind is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells by our own thoughts. This is from the Dhammapada. And it's very interesting, there's a saying that goes that it, our intentions shapes our thoughts, words, and actions. So the power of the mind. Thoughts, words, and actions shape our behaviors. Behaviors sculpt our bodily expressions. Our bodily expressions fashions our character. Our character hardens into what we look like, what we're like. Now there's kind of a humorous saying, and I'm not sure if I like it or not, but it says by the time you're 50, you get the face you deserve. <laughs> but it can change, we can smile. With wise understanding and wise view, we understand that our actions create results and we aspire to live a life of non-harming. Very practical. Wise intention or wise thoughts, there's three kinds. One aspect is renunciation, that we become free, working to become free of our desires, our clinging, our aversions, and not because it's morally bad. So we're not like giving a moral trip here. It's actually from our direct experience. When we practice, we begin to see that, that these states of mind cause suffering, not outside of myself, right inside me. We understand that our actions create these results, and therefore we begin to aspire to live with non-harming. Secondly, we cultivate the intention of goodwill, of loving kindness, friendliness to all beings that opposes thoughts that are governed by ill will, aversion, and anger. And thirdly, we cultivate the qualities of harmlessness, ahimsa, that's guided and fueled or supported by compassion. May all beings be free of danger and pain. So these qualities of understanding and intention set the heart in a very beautiful way. 
To support this heart in a beautiful way, we enter into the next grouping of virtue or sila. This is indeed the foundation for developing a steady mind. And we've been here um, at the meditation center, keeping our five precepts, working with ourselves, these types of ways of living virtuously. We're not speaking hard to one another. It's, it's, these supporting factors are allies to help steady the mind. When we're, you know, we, we spent some time talking about the distractions that are coming up, and these are distractions that are coming up from, the, um, from our life. And we come here to heal. And as we begin to work with steadying the mind by developing ways of living virtuously, Gradually, we have more ease. And we even can consider certain aspects of this wise attention that they can become like guardians, that we begin to develop a sense of, of, of realizing uh, you know, when we have done something unskillful, we learn from those actions and make amends. And we learn a lesson that hopefully is not repeated. And conversely, we begin to develop a fear, a dread of causing harm to others because we've had that experience earlier of when we have caused harm and the pain that it caused us and others. Sometimes it's called moral shame and moral dread. And it's referred to as these are the guardians of the world. They are great protectors for us. They help us to, to that we can learn from our, our unskillful ways and protect us from unskillful ways of the future. So in specific, we speak about wise speech. Speech is so incredibly powerful. It can heal us. It can kill us. The story in John Kabat-Zinn's book, In Full Catastrophe Living, about a patient that saw the sign, the patient is TS. And the patient interpreted that the word TS, or heard they said the patient was TS, as a terminal situation. And the situation was not terminal at all. Unfortunately, the patient died. Words can free us, they can enslave us. So when we look at the qualities of wise speech, now this is something to take home. We speak of speech that's kind and honest. And perhaps most importantly, that it's timely, that it's useful. We try to not speak in ways that cause harm, false speech. When we lie, it breaks trust. We slander, it creates division, it breaks unity. So these are qualities of wise speech. Harsh speech, insulting speech, it takes away our dignity, it's shaming. And we all know what it feels like to be shamed, losing our sense of self-respect. Sarcasm, we feel slighted. Idle chatter, it lacks purpose and depth. says it in the Dhammapada that hatred never ceases by hatred, only love ceases hatred. This is a universal law, and the qualities of wine speech bring unity, end division, bring kindness, bring healing, bring peace. And in our world, like um, I was actually mentioning earlier today, and maybe it was yesterday, it's all getting blurry in a small group about yeah, our desire to connect with each other, because we do want to connect with each other. It's probably no coincidence Facebook is so successful, like 500 million people on Facebook wanting to connect with each other. So that sense of connection is important, and how can we do it skillfully? And yet many of us, we just, you know, like, um, actually Hafiz has a poem that kind of speaks to this. It's like everyone's kind of like walking around with a sign saying, love me, but you wouldn't really say that out loud. <laughs> that desire to want to connect, to be seen, to be heard. So the poem goes, everyone you see, you say to them, love me, but of course, you don't say this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. <laughs> but still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. So why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that's always saying in that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. 
Why not be the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that's always saying in that sweet moon language what every other eye and heart in this world is dying to hear? There's nothing like that quality of being seen, being heard, being listened to. Unconditional love. One of the greatest gifts in, in communication really is our ability to listen. So no doubt it's, there's a lot of things here about how to conduct our speech, but I'll just also add on the importance of listening. One of the greatest gifts that we can offer any human being is to listen. It's a kindness. So often we're in the midst of interrupting, trying to get our own point of view, our own side. And what would it be like to sit back to listen? And that gift, I think we all know that when we have been heard, how wonderful that is. Next is wise action. So this is pointing to the precepts of virtuous living, abstaining from taking life, from stealing, from sexual suffering, adultery, abuse, oppression, violence in any way related to sexuality. Working with our bodily actions, with our speech, with our body. The Buddha then speaks about wise livelihood. Not by trickery or deception, not causing suffering, and it gets a little specific, like working in weapon plants and poisons and intoxicants and slave trading and prostitution, exploitation. Very difficult, though, in our times in our societies, how we find wise livelihood. Yeah. But how can we find livelihood that is skillful? And then, of course, with the livelihoods that we are working in, how can we apply these ways of communication with kindness, with our actions? The Buddha speaks about, this is a very beautiful sutta called the Mahamangala Sutta, and it particularly addresses householders, not monks. And it goes that I've heard that at one time the Buddha was staying at Savati at the Jetta's Grove at Anatha Pandika's monastery. And then a certain celestial being in the far extreme of the night, her radiance lighting the entirety of the Jetta Grove, approached the Buddha and stood to one side and asked the Buddha, what are the highest protections. And the Buddha replied by not consorting with fools, consorting with the wise, this is the highest protection. Having broad knowledge and skill well mastered in the practice of mindfulness, this is the highest protection. Supporting one's parents, assistance to one's family, consistency in one's work, this is the highest protection. Giving, living, and with practice, assisting relatives, deeds that are blameless, this is the highest protection. Avoiding, abstaining from evil, refraining from intoxicants, being heedful, mindful of the qualities of the mind, this is the highest protection. Respect, humility, contentment, gratitude, hearing the Dharma, this is the highest protection. A mind, when touched by the ways of the world, is unshakable, sorrowless, dustless, at rest. This is the highest protection. The last quality with the virtuous practices, the practices of sila, is wise Actually, no, that was the last practice, wise livelihood. And sorry, um, the next grouping, the last grouping, is the cultivation of the mind. And the first is effort, wise and skillful effort. Effort that helps us to restrain the defilements. Again, the defilements, greed, hatred, ignorance. Effort to abandon the defilements. Effort to develop wholesome states of mind, effort to maintain wholesome states of mind. These help these factors of enlightenment, the factors of awakening to grow. 
Wise mindfulness, of course, the next aspect is the practices Richard has shared with the four foundations of mindfulness of the body, the feelings, the mind states, the dharmas. And last is wise concentration. The steadying of the mind, one-pointedness, unification, and in very uh, developed situations, absorption. All of these different practices of virtue, concentration, and wisdom come back to deepen our understanding of suffering and its cause. As I mentioned, these eight links are interrelated and work together to help develop our peace. As our peace awakens, the Buddha says that praise and blame, these are the eight worldly conditions, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, fame and disrepute, come and go like the wind, to be happy, rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. So I've said a lot here tonight, and of course, um, all of the talks that uh, Richard and I have done are, will be on the Dharma Seed Library, which you can listen to. And but these, I can't express enough this importance of the, this Eightfold Path is supreme. It really lays out in very practical ways how we can live our lives to grow in wisdom, how to steady our minds, how to develop our practice and grow. So I really want to encourage you to, perhaps as a lifetime, to work with these steps to uh, awaken. Say that the Dharma is good at the beginning and the middle and at the end. So I'll just end with a couple of readings, and one is by um, William Stafford, wonderful poet, I love him, and this was the last poem he ever wrote. It was the, the second to last day before he died, and he had a habit of writing a poem every morning. This was his last poem, two days before his death. He said, it's called The Way It Is. He said, there's a thread you follow, and it goes among the things that change, but it doesn't change. And people wonder about you and what you're pursuing, and you have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. And while you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and you get old. Amazing, huh? Two days before he died. He ends it by saying, nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding, and you don't ever let go of the thread. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding, and you don't ever let go of the thread. Hafiz, my beloved crazy man, who obliterated himself with love, he says, I've learned so much from the divine that I can no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew. The truth has shared so much of itself with me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even a pure soul. Love has befriended Hafiz so completely. Love has befriended Hafiz so completely. It has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and every image my mind has ever known. Mm. That's being obliterated by love. Love has befriended Hafiz so completely it has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and every image my mind has ever known. So little by little, our healing happens, our awakening happens. So I'll just end. I will end. <laughs> with a reading from the Velveteen Rabbit. What's real, asked the rabbit one day. 
Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just plays with you, but loves you, really loves you, that's when you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Yes, sometimes it does, said the skin horse. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. To become real takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. <laughs> your eyes drop out. You get loose in the joints. Definitely very, very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you're real, you can't be ugly. Except for people who don't understand. And once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It's a nice fairy tale. It lasts for always. Once you're real, you can't be ugly. May all beings be at peace. We'll just sit for a minute. do some walking and come back for another sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.